Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. At times, it feels like the United States is cracking down the middle into two separate countries, one that embraces the divine feminine and one that fears it. The recent election results only reaffirmed this schism, with a hundred women elected to the House of Representatives on the one hand, while Republicans who cleaved hard to the side of the president were also sent to Congress in large numbers. While our country, and frankly, the whole world, wrestles with the reinvention of society through a feminist lens, many of us are feeling the stress and fragmentation that are part of this process. The Me Too movement, trans rights, gay marriage, these are only the most visible spots where the battle lines are being drawn. But it doesn't take much to see how this embrace of the divine feminine also includes a new consciousness about the sacredness of all of nature. A reimagining of the planet from a source of material resources to a complex organism that breathes with life and of which we are a part. It's the witches among us who are pioneering this linkage between empowerment of the feminine and the importance of sustainable practices that acknowledge and protect the environment. No one has done more to nurture this movement in support of regenerative forces than Starhawk. Her best-selling book, The Spiral Dance, helped bring goddess worship to the religious forefront and left an indelible mark on feminist spiritual consciousness. Her weave of visionary feminism with earth-based spirituality has had a huge influence on our current moment. Starhawk is an author, activist, permaculture designer, and teacher, and a prominent voice in modern earth-based spirituality and ecofeminism. She is the author or co-author of 13 books, including the ecotopian novel The Fifth Sacred Thing, its sequel City of Refuge, and the Empowerment Manual, a guide for collaborative groups on group dynamics, power, conflict, and communications. Starhawk founded Earth Activist Training, teaching permaculture design grounded in spirituality and with a focus on activism. She travels internationally, lecturing and teaching on earth-based spirituality, the tools of ritual, and the skills of activism. This same trajectory that leads us to embrace the feminine and the sacredness of our planet also offers a path to the healing that must happen if we are to make our society whole and sustainable. As we discuss in today's episode, this movement arose out of women coming together into groups and talking honestly about what they need to heal. That healing process may be bumpy, but it continues today, maybe now more than ever. Evolver is the proud parent of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary dedicated to the healing power of plants. At the Alchemist Kitchen, we work with the finest herbalists who are producing high-quality botanical medicines, herbal remedies, and whole plant beauty products. 
At the Alchemist Kitchen, it's now the season of the witch, a celebration of the feminist, counter-mainstream witch movement. The Alchemist Kitchen believes in the demystification of the witch and sees this archetypal figure as an essential part of our ethos. We see the good witch as integral to this mission. Beyond the natural healer, the witch represents divine femininity, the wild woman, and the mystic. We drive to both defend this energy and encourage people to tap into their inner magic. We invite you to join us this season by attending events at our different locations, checking out our blog, shopping our site, reading our Season of the Witch zine, and browsing our social media for witch tips and tricks. Today's episode of The Evolver with Starhawk is part of a series that includes the inspirational witches Allison Gray, Kim Kranz, Robin Rose Bennett, and Pam Grossman. Please check them out. You can learn more at thealchemistkitchen.com, thealchemistskitchen.com, or stop by our flagship at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue. The Witch in Us celebrates the witch in you. What gives you hope? Well, I am feeling hopeful after the elections. Um, we're recording this just two days after the election, and uh, the fact that so many women were elected, so many candidates that represent communities of color, lesbian, gay, transgender, LGBTQ candidates have made some real gains. Like, I think we have the first openly gay governor now in Colorado, and yeah. uh, we elected a Native American lesbian woman, Sharice Davids, in Kansas, of all places. You know, the Democrats took back the House, so now we have some checks and some power to leverage. Okay, but would you call yourself a real Democrat? I think it's kind of a mistake to identify ourselves with political parties. I probably would have called myself more of an anarchist uh, in general in that I've always been interested in how we transform power rather than how we take power. But maybe now that I'm older and possibly a little <laughs> more, I don't know if it's jaded or cynical or realistic, but I've seen that it is really important to look at the systems of power that are in place and to figure out how we relate to them and respond to them. Because if we don't, other people will who don't have our best interests at heart. Yeah, so true. for this election, I was very much about getting people out to vote and vote for Democrats because without taking back that power, you know, now that the Democrats control the House, they have the power to do things like reopen an investigation into the whole Russia question and subpoena documents and subpoena witnesses. Those things are really important. And the gains that we can make from voting, even though they aren't the complete, amazing, radical transformation a lot of us would love to see, are actually really important things that affect real people's lives. And we can't afford to ignore those things. So you feel like maybe at one time you were focusing more on transforming power mm -hmm. and kind of ignoring the powers that be. Yeah, I don't know if I was ignoring them, but I wasn't much focused on, uh, I wasn't as uh, savvy as I think I am now from, 
being somewhat addicted to political podcasts over the last few months. Oh, my and God. understanding how the power actually works yeah. and what it means, mm-hmm. you know, for example, that we have a majority in the House instead of a minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why it is, you know, for example, the Democrats couldn't prevent Kavanaugh from getting confirmed and why the Democrats couldn't push our candidate for the Supreme Court to actually get a hearing. Back when Obama was still yeah, president. Yeah, when Obama was still president. Mm-hmm. And realizing, oh, it's because of the Senate rules, you know, it was up to Mitch McConnell to bring him up for a hearing, and he simply refused to do it. Right. You know, I listen to some political podcasts, but yeah. I find that at a certain point, if I open myself up to too much of the political news, mm-hmm. you know, if I end up staring at, you know, MSNBC and CNN yeah. for too many hours, it has this way of shifting my own sense of what's possible in the world mm-hmm. and taking me out of my connection to the stuff that really keeps me inspired and focused on what I think ultimately matters the most. Mm-hmm. And kind of brings me down into this awful trough of yuckiness. You know, last weekend I was in San Francisco where I live. And in the middle of all this tension and run up to the election, uh, it was Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. And we always have a huge procession there and a festival of altars in a park that's just around the corner from my house where people come and build altars And for many, many years now, the organizers have invited me to be part of the procession and help call in the elements and the directions. I feel it's an incredible honor to be kind of an honorary Latina. (laughs) Sweet. But just marching in that procession and, you know, I was right there where the Aztec dancers were performing and they were an amazing group that, you know, for them, it wasn't a performance. It was a spiritual offering. They had been up all the night before dancing and praying, and each dance was a prayer, and you could feel that energy. And to feel the crowds gathering and to see the faces of people as we walked, it's incredibly diverse crowd of all walks of life, all kinds of people, It was just so touching to me, and it kind of brought me back and said, yeah, this is really the America that we're fighting for and that we can envision and that, you know, it's not even just a possibility. It really exists. There are places where we can actually come together, honor each other's traditions, understand that the immigrants are bringing us something of real beauty and wisdom and that enriches our lives. And then going to the park where so many people had built altars, you know, beautiful altars for friends, for families, for loved ones, for people who've died. Um, Someone puts up a string all along the side of the park where people can write messages to the dead and thousands and thousands of people all coming together you know, united in the basic commonality we all share, which is that we all are going to die. And we all, if we live long enough, are going to experience a loss of someone we deeply care about. It was really a powerful antidote to the (laughs) political (laughs) jangly nervousness, you know. And I think community is such an important factor 
both in resistance, but also in building and creating the world that we want. Yes. It's like having the community you can turn to where you can be grounded in that thing that keeps you connected to the higher stuff while also allowing yourself to get, you know, at least to touch the messy, political, argumentative, who's winning today, who's down today kind of mishmash. Yeah. We can't afford to ignore that. We can't afford to say, oh, I'm above that. Um, Because at this point, to ignore it is to basically acquiesce in what Trump is doing and in the politics of hatred and racism and sexism. But we don't have to be ground down by it if we have a connection to real community. And for me, being an activist has always meant not just being opposed to things, but I think Our opposition is always so much stronger when we know what it is we're fighting for. That is so critical. That is so absolutely critical. The political moment Mm -hmm. seems to be defined right now by what you hate, what you're reacting against, what is driving you crazy, rather than the vision that you're holding that you would like everyone to share. And I think people are hungry for a vision and starve for a vision. I think we saw that, that the Politicians that actually offered a positive vision did really well. And the ones that were, you know... Well, no. maybe. Some of us well, well, there were some yeah. that also offered yeah. a really negative right. vision that did right. well. I and mean, people were looking yeah. to Florida and they were yeah. looking to Texas and they thought, oh, you know what? Those There are these progressive, positive speaking, yeah. you know, gubernatorial candidates and they're going to actually rock some, or, or Senate, mm-hmm. and they're going to rock some things. It didn't happen. It didn't actually Mm -hmm. work. And then you read in the New York Times the Mm -hmm. next day, uh, well, this just goes to prove that you can't really be a progressive on the national stage and expect that you're going to, you know, win in places like Florida and Texas. And yet, if you look at it in a little more, like, detail and nuance, you know, someone like Beto O'Rourke did, the fact that he did what he did in Texas against the incumbent Ted Cruz and came so close is phenomenal. And because he did that, all down the line, there were races in Congress and other races where progressives did really well. You know, if he had run as a centrist Democrat, that's kind of like, well, I'm just like the Republicans, but not quite as much, he would not have done nearly as well as he did. And I think what we're seeing in Florida You know, the Senate and the governorship are going to recount as we're recording this. By the time you hear it, it may be over, but it was so close. Stacey Abrams, in spite of a massive campaign by her opponent, who was secretary of state, to purge people from the voter rolls, to keep people from voting, you know, overcame that to come so close that it is going to a runoff election. You know, and um, if those provisional ballots and things are actually counted, she may yet turn out to be the winner. So that is phenomenal. You know, people. So these are the these are the little victories or yeah. the close victories or the almost victories that give you some hope that in the future things are going to be a lot better. Yes. But you know, as someone who's been watching Democratic mm-hmm. Party politics yeah. for an awfully long time, and frankly had my messy hands in some of that uh-huh. myself at one point, there's a sense honestly, that like a lot of Democrats are comfortable just not quite winning and (laughs) getting really close and slapping ourselves on the back and looking like, 
wow, Bernie Sanders was so, look at he, look at how far he got. Yeah. As opposed to, look at what we got. Yeah. Right. And that's where sometimes I ask myself, how much of my attention can I really give to mm-hmm. that political machine, Michigas, as opposed to building the transformational thing mm-hmm. that ultimately is what's going to make the difference if we get it propagated far enough, we can get enough people to actually hear it, respond to it, open our heart to it, and participate. Well, you know, for those of us for whom even the progressive Democrats are, you know, not as progressive as we'd like them to be, right? Mm-hmm. I think part of our job right now is to say, how do we build a movement that is really calling for this larger vision and deeper vision? And how do we make that movement one that is welcoming to people? You know, the thing is about activists is, honestly, we tend to be judgy sorts of people. Oh, right? but not That's me. I'm not me. Right? I'm not yeah. the judge. I mean, maybe you, but no, yeah. I would never do that. So it's very easy as an activist to kind of go like, you, like, you know, you don't get the language. You aren't saying the right thing. You're offended because I say this to you, you know, like... You should be ashamed of who you are and, you know, you don't get it. And there are times when we may be saying something different, but our energy is not that different from what we're opposing. And so I think we need to think about how do we say to people, you, whoever you are, uh, are of value. We are building a movement that writes off nobody, um, that says every human being is here for a reason, for a purpose, and has a, a precious and sacred purpose in life. And we as a movement are here to support each other. If your deepest desire is to be an agent of justice and balance and ecological thriving in this world, our movement is here to support you and cheer you on in be part of that with you. But what if you're one of those people in those red states, which seem to be even redder today than yeah. they were two years ago, looking at the numbers, mm-hmm. who are embracing the president whose name shall not be used mm-hmm. on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> and are freaking out about all of those immigrants, mm-hmm. have no empathetic, deep connection to people who are other than their notion of what it is to be a healthy, hetero human being. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that going on right now. There's a deep emotional undercurrent here of freak out. I think that emotional undercurrent comes because we sense intuitively that the way we've been living is not sustainable and that things are going to change and need to change. And we're all faced with change all the time. So... When we think about building a movement to make that change a positive change and a compassionate change, we need to think about how we reach those people. And unfortunately, you don't really reach people by telling them they're bad and wrong, even if they are, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the question. So yeah. that's the, that's where, frankly, yeah. a lot of folks from that place mm-hmm. look at us and go, man, you hypocrites. You're yeah. treating me as if, you think you're, you're so full of compassion as long uh-huh. as I do exactly what you want me to do. Yeah. Right. And if I don't meet your standards of what it is to be an enlightened mm-hmm. liberal person, then you're writing me off as evil. Yeah. Right. 
honestly, I got to say, when they come at mm-hmm. us with that, I think they're right. Okay. And there's an awful lot of energy on our side, quote unquote, our side, mm-hmm. which should not even be, you know, like the problem yeah. there, our side, that's a problem, that is coming from its own wounding mm-hmm. and feels it needs to assert a certain kind of aggressive, like, listen, I've been oppressed for so long. Yeah. Here's, you got to you know, essentially deal with my shit. It's complicated. Yeah. Right? It is sort of a basic human trait that I think cuts across all races, religions, classes, and backgrounds that it's very appealing to feel superior to other people, <laughs> however you can do it. Um, but I do think we have to maybe resist that temptation. Uh, you know, I also teach permaculture design, which is a whole system of ecological design that says, hey, if we look at how nature works, we observe it, we work in the same way, we can meet our human needs while actually regenerating the environment around us. So if you're a permaculturalist or even an organic gardener or farmer, you know, if you're like a chemical farmer and you see a pest in the field, your response is, kill it. You know, what's the poison I can use? You know, how do I nuke it? How do I get rid of it? But if you're an organic farmer or permaculturalist, you're, you see a pest and you're going, interesting. <laughs> Who is this? How do I learn more about it? How well, do I understand its life cycle? It may not be necessarily a pest. Uh-huh. It, it lives there, right? I mean, yeah. it's sort of taking it out of the context of the good and the bad. Yeah. And how do I understand what conditions are favoring it uh, and change those conditions rather than dumping poison all over everything? Right. And I think if we applied the same thing to our political understanding, we might be saying, hmm, well, what are the conditions that are giving rise to this sudden upsurge in racism and xenophobia and anti-integrity? immigrant sentiment and all of these deplorable things. Well, if you are in rural areas right now, a lot of those areas are very depressed and depressing. Farmers are having to work extra jobs in order to support their farming habit because they can't support themselves farming. Um, They are places where the land has been degraded, where the community has been degraded. You know, they are places where many places only get Fox News. So let's look at those conditions and say, how do we shift those conditions? You know, maybe if we speak to people in those areas and listen to people about what's actually going on in their lives, we might be able to come to some common ground and we may be able to find ways to address those conditions that would be more appealing than or the quick ego fix of, oh, I can feel good about myself because I am superior to you. In a lot of those red states, one of the emotional energizers, it seems, for many of the voters Mm -hmm. is a reaction against the Me Too movement, Mm -hmm. reaction against the feminine, Mm. the feminization of the society, which the work that you've done Mm -hmm. and other witchy feminists of the past couple of generations have really, you know, put into play and made into a political issue. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the energy that is essentially, um, if not embracing of Trump, at least forgiving of Trump. Mm. Oh, I just used his name. Yeah. (laughs) Now the dementors are going to come and attack. Exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> but there's something in play here, which you've uh-huh. been tracking for an awfully long time. The Me Too movement and that movement to first even identify sexual harassment as a thing. You know, I'm what, 67 years old now. I grew up in the 50s. When I was growing up, sexual harassment wasn't anything anyone had identified or talked about. It was just a condition of life. You know, I remember when I was must have been about 11 or 12 and I was in a department store and some guy came up and stuck his hand down my crotch, you know, and I told my mother about it and her response. And the word for that was, oh, he goosed you. You know, something like, doesn't that sound cute, right? (laughs) Not he sexually assaulted you or he harassed you. And her response was, you shouldn't have been wearing those tight pants. You know, it was very classic. Yeah, right. Whoa. You know, and that and that was like the condition of life. So it wasn't until the feminist movement in the late 60s and 70s and 80s where women got together and started to talk about their experiences where we could say no, this is intolerable. This isn't cute, you know, being wolf whistled and all of this. This is part of the way that men have been entitled to women's bodies that is also part of this whole system that allows some people to be entitled to control and determine the resources and the fates of other people. And that ultimately isn't good for men any more than it's good for women because it also allows a few men to have the entitlement to determine what goes on to other men's bodies, like... Uh, sending them off to war to kill or die or you know, get maimed or destroy each other or to control their resources or to force them into low-paid labor. So to me, feminism has always been part of a movement. Today, we would say it's intersectional. You know, in the old days, we used to talk more about interlocking oppressions, that all of these things are interconnected. And the Me Too movement is not so much a movement against men, um, but a movement against a culture that supports and sustains the objectifying of other human beings. But So what do you say to a woman mm-hmm. in that red part of the country who is voting for Trump? Yeah. Well, you might start by saying doing what we did in the early feminist movement, which is that We didn't start with positions. We started by getting women together to talk about their own experiences. And you might say, tell me something about your life, about your experience. Has there ever been moments in your life where uh, you've been in a situation that was uncomfortable around your sexuality, where you felt like somebody else was objectifying you? How did that feel? How would you suggest... We deal with that as a society. You might not get anywhere with some people, right? Mm -hmm. If nothing else, you might learn, you know, even when you talk with somebody you radically, radically disagree with, you know, at worst, you'll learn how a person like that thinks and sees the world. And if you don't talk to people, you know, if you just, you know, shun people on Facebook or, you know, flame them or whatever, and don't actually engage in dialogue, 
then you don't learn that. And then we as a movement are that much less smart and able to respond. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, a lot of people's yeah. concern about the current political situation is you've got yeah. these parallel conversations happening in the country yeah. that are not intersecting at all. Right. Yeah, and there's more and more feeling I hear from young people. It's like uh, outraged if you suggest they talk to someone who they politically disagree with. It's like, you want me to talk to someone, you know, who holds these terrible views? I'm like, yes, <laughs> exactly. Right? Not necessarily because you're going to persuade that person, but because you might learn something that might help you persuade the 10 other people that don't necessarily know what they think yet, but might be conducive to hearing your views or someone else's views so you know what it is you're countering and you know what it is that's out there. I would even go a little bit further than that and suggest that a lot of the visionary way that we hold mm-hmm. the a transformational future comes from a deeper connection, an open connection to heart mm. and to suffering. And to an opening to a conversation around what it is to be in a suffering place. Mm-hmm. And that by engaging in that conversation with people who may not agree with a lot of the things that seem to be you know, important to, to, to this side of the aisle, enables an opening towards how we got to where we are for those folks. Those the people yeah. who are 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 shunning that and and actually, on some level, feel threatened by it. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the basis of the whole philosophy of nonviolence? You know that you approach other people with respect and honor for them as human beings, with the understanding that every human being has the potential to grow and change, and with the understanding again that there's something to learn from that interaction. You know. Yeah. So I'm holding here a copy of The Spiral Dance. And on the bio, in the bio on the back, the first thing it says is, Starhawk is a witch. (laughs) And witch is W, capitalized W. Yeah. What does it mean to be a witch? To me, being a witch means being someone who has a commitment to the old pre-Christian, earth-based spiritual traditions that come from Europe and from the Middle East and are... Uh, centered on the ancient goddesses and on the understanding that nature is sacred, that the earth is sacred, that our bodies, our sexuality are sacred. And by sacred, I don't mean, you know, something out there you bow down to. I mean, you could say really important, (laughs) right? Something that goes beyond the value of just your personal convenience or comfort or profit, uh, something you might even sacrifice for, take a stand for, take a risk for, because it's that important to you. When did you first recognize that you were a witch? I was probably about 17 years old. I was at UCLA in my first year of college, and we took we did an anthropology project on witches, met some witches. They started telling us about- Whoa, whoa, whoa. You met some witches. We met some witches. In UCLA, in LA. In LA, yeah. In what? Was this 1965 or something? It was uh, 67 or 68, yeah. What kind of witches were in LA in 68? (laughs) Lots of women. Really? Well, I had met them originally at the Renaissance Fair, 
in the witch's wood, and they had a shop selling herbs and candles and things. And so I can't remember how we reconnected with them as part of this project, but they came and started teaching us and telling us about this ancient spiritual tradition. And to me, it was so exciting. You know, I was raised Jewish, and I had been quite religious as a child. More, My parents were you know, the Reformed generation, they were political, they weren't that religious. My grandparents were Orthodox, but I wanted to go to Hebrew school. I had lots of Hebrew education. I went to Hebrew high school, and I had classes at the University of Judaism while I was still in high school. Um, I went to Israel on a Hebrew high school summer in Israel program when I was 15. So I had been very much always interested in religion and spirituality and those deeper questions. But my own experiences of that deep connectedness weren't really happening in the temple or in study. They would happen in, in nature. And I was 16, 17 years old. It was the 60s. It was the sexual revolution. It was all of that that was much more appealing than sitting and studying the Talmud. <laughs> right. I can understand. Yeah. Yeah. So finding that there was actually, you know, a religious tradition, a spiritual tradition that said nature is sacred, that said sexuality is sacred, that said you as a woman can be a leader. You know, you don't have to be relegated to being a Hebrew school teacher because that was before there were any women rabbis or cantors or anything. That was very, very exciting to me. And I kind of went, I, I'm a witch. <laughs> was there a moment? Was there, was there a point where, you, do you, where it really clearly hit you? It's like, whoa. Because I would imagine that your first association with being a witch was a lot of the cliche popular culture stuff. Yeah which you may or may not have related to when you were younger. Did that appeal to you? You know, it was interesting to me and a little scary, all the popular stuff and the devil worship and all that stuff. But it was when I met these witches who were, they were from an American Celtic tradition, and they started to tell us about it, that something really clicked and said, yes, you know, this is giving a name to what I've always intuitively felt. And was that coming to you because of your participation in a kind of ceremonial activity or were you just kind of ha having coffee? I think it was just in the conversation. And, uh, and then later we would do some ceremonies. We had a group that formed a coven where not sure what we did except we beat on sticks and sang songs and smoked marijuana. <laughs> I don't think we knew very much. But the witches we met, kind of also said, well, this is a discipline. It's a training. You know, if you really want to learn it, you actually don't smoke marijuana. You don't take drugs. Um, you learn how to make those shifts in consciousness without drugs. Oh, really? So yeah. they were deep in the yeah. mystical side. Yeah. Were they and meditators? Like, what were they doing? Yeah, they gave us meditations and visualization exercises and things to read and they said, you have to exercise every day. You need to have a spiritual practice every day. So this was a formal class, or was it more kind of like stopping by the coven and hanging out? Or more like stopping by the coven and hanging out, yeah. 
And so, and how be, old were they? Like, I'm just curious a little bit. Like, what? Probably in their 40s yeah. and 50s. So they were kind of like beatnik type witches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in a feminist group in LA, when I, which is where I was living. We had a consciousness raising group. So we had a group of women where every week we'd get together, we'd have a topic. We talk about our own experiences. It might be your mother. It might be sexuality. It might be religion. It might be school, anything. And that was a lot of how the movement was organized at that time, was around these groups where, because we'd realized that, you know, all the political theories, all the psychological theories, that they were all by men, about men. And how do you know what to believe when... Uh, there was a group called the Fireside Theater, a comedy group at the time, who had a record that said, everything you know is wrong. You know, right? <laughs> so how do you know what to believe? Well, you have to start by talking about your own experience and telling your own stories. And so we'd get together and we'd do that. And it was out of those groups that the whole feminist, you know, the Me Too movement of the time, the whole idea that rape is a political issue, not just a personal tragedy that things like sexual harassment or battering of women were important issues that were part of a societal problem, not just a personal problem. That all came out of that process of consciousness raising. And so as part of our group, we talked about religion. We did some rituals. There were other groups in L.A. at the time that were starting to bring together you know, the idea uh, we need to look at spirituality, we need to look at religion, we need to look at the way that, as Mary Daly said, when God is male, then the male is God. (laughs) See if there ever was anything different or could be anything different. So it was a very exciting time. And What kind of rituals were you doing and where did they come from? How did you find them? Well, when I moved to San Francisco, I met a much larger community of witches up here. And some of it were people who actually had some kind of hereditary tradition in their family because there still were remnants of that old tradition that were left. There was one family I remember called the Tower family, and they said their tradition was, you know, when the witch hunters came, they were the refuge for people. They were the tower you could go to. Uh, I studied with a man named Victor Anderson and his wife, Cora Anderson, who came from what they called the fairy tradition that uh, they claimed at least went back to the little people of Scotland from prehistoric times. Uh, and there were other traditions. There was a group in the Bay Area called Nerud, the New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn that had started out of class in San Francisco State. It was a class in anthropology, and they created a ritual as part of the class, and they did the ritual, and the ritual worked for them. <laughs> and they kept doing it, and they created a whole tradition. What kind of ritual? What were they calling in with that ritual? They were calling in the goddess and drawing down the moon. So they had uh, looked at what other groups were doing and put something together, and they had a very talented poet as part of their group. Who was that? Aidan Kelly. And they created a beautiful liturgy, and it worked. So we had groups, and we would experiment. We'd take the nuggets of things that we knew or had learned or been taught, 
and put them together. And then afterwards, we go, well, how'd that work? You know? When was right? the first time? Do you remember the first time you felt like a ceremony really worked for you? A ritual like did it? Yeah, I went to one of those Narug ceremonies when I just moved to San Francisco. It was a Lamas ritual for the beginning part of August, the 1st of August, which is one of the old Celtic festivals. And I had been teaching a class in one of the alternative universities, and a woman came in, her name was Chandria, sat down, said like, oh, we heard you were doing this, and you know, who are you and what are you doing? And we came to check you out. I kind of went, ah, (laughs) the real witches have found me out. They're going to drive me out. But then she invited me to the ceremony. So a bunch of us went with lots of fear and trepidation. We're like, okay, they start sacrificing babies. We're out of there. (laughs) But it was in a park and they had a beautiful table and altars and giant baskets of moon-shaped cookies and beautiful regalia and they cast a circle and they sang a song did a spiral dance raised some energy and I just it was like I felt high for days afterwards it was so beautiful to me and so affirming to see that you know there must have been a hundred people there that so many people could come together around this thing that up until that time for me had always been something very small and very secret and very much kind of whispered in corners. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What I love about this and tell me I'm wrong if I'm not if I'm missing it, is that it feels like that for a while, maybe in a few years, you were working with a small group with this idea of what a ceremony or ritual mm-hmm. should be doing. Kinda maybe feeling it, but maybe not really feeling it. But in a way, the participation was more of a kind of a symbolic participation in a in a revival of an idea of the feminine, of an mm-hmm. active, powerful feminine, but maybe not so much a way of connecting with spiritual energies in their in 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 their say like raw state mm-hmm. where you can have a direct experience of spiritual energies but you're kind of almost fumbling with that in a way until you got introduced into a lineage mm-hmm. where that aspect of the ritual was fully on and then you're starting to get it. They're like, oh, now I feel this. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I would say that there were always moments, even in our smaller rituals, where you felt that deep connection. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be chanting, it might be drumming, it might be just going into one of those altered states, but seeing it uh, just on a much larger scale and participating with so many people was definitely a whole other order of uh, 
inspiration. Had you had a connection to that kind of energetic feeling through your use of psychedelics when you were younger? Did you know what this was like and what you wanted it to feel like when you have it? Yes. I, you know, when I was much younger, I had certainly used marijuana and LSD, and I had had some very powerful spiritual experiences on LSD for sure. Especially, you know, I spent a summer when I was 16 kind of hitchhiking around California. It was 1967, uh, living outside, camping outside as a girl from the suburbs of LA, just being outside. The summer of love. (laughs) Yeah, was, you know, (laughs) mind-blowing. And, you know, I just had very powerful experiences of connecting to nature through that and feeling like I was part of the natural world, that nature was speaking to me, and I was in deep connection with that. And then you're doing these ceremonies mm-hmm. later in yeah. and building them and then seeing this is a whole other way of connecting with nature. Yeah, I was interested in can you get to that without going the route of the drugs, partly because I'd also had a boyfriend who became very much a drug addict, and I got very turned off to the whole energy around the whole scene of it. And also, again, because meeting those original teachers and remembering their instructions, it's like, okay, well, the drugs are sort of like training wheels, but how do you get to these states without that? So now you look at the witches movement and the pagan, you know, the goddess worship movement over these last, you know, it's been, you know, this this last chunk of decades compared to where you were Mm -hmm. when you were beginning. What is it about this that is happening now that inspires you? But also, where are your questions about it? I think the movement has grown tremendously in part because of the internet made it much more accessible. You know, in the 60s, if you wanted to meet witches, you... So you had to have you had to like have some strange stroke of luck, or you know maybe you'd go to a, a cult bookstore and post a note or see something. But people weren't teaching classes. People weren't open about it. It was much more underground and secret. When the internet came along, it created ways people could connect around it safely, and so it's grown tremendously since that. And brought together a lot of people, women and men, because our our groups were always open to men and also to people who were gender diverse or transgender. Um, We never were separatists in that way. You know, we've grown tremendously, and part of that has been through being able to be open, teaching, writing about it, putting it out into the world, and attracting people. And I think there's a tremendous spiritual hunger right now in younger people, but also in people of all ages and walks of life for something that makes sense in today's world. It's harder, you know, for people to adopt something that requires a dogma or belief system, but the pagan movement is not about believing in things you can't see. It's about shifting our attitude to what we can see. It's about honoring the cycles of birth and growth and death and regeneration. So, For someone yeah. who doesn't understand, yeah. hears you say that yeah. and doesn't actually understand what you're talking about, <laughs> could you give a suggestion about what is, maybe is a first step for them? Yeah. So, you know, you don't have to 
believe in a tree goddess, right? Even though goddesses have been associated with trees down through the ages, you can go outside and look at a tree, right? And if you look at the tree, you'll notice, you know, this time of year here, right now we're in the East Coast, the leaves are turning, the leaves are falling, they fall to the earth, and they decay, and they become earth, and become soil, become fertility, it feeds the roots of that tree, and, you know, the tree will grow up, and in the spring, it'll put out new buds and new leaves, and regenerate, it'll do that magic of photosynthesis, of taking the sun's energy and using it to do alchemy with air and water and create food and it will grow and it will put out new leaves and those leaves will eventually in the fall again turn color and get swept away by the autumn storms and fall to earth and decay and that cycle goes on again and again and again. So it's not about having to believe in some dogma. It's about observing that and going like, oh, that is sacred. That is the process of birth and growth and death and regeneration that sustains life and flows through life. And we can see it in the tree. We can see it in ourselves. We can see it in the cycles of the season and the moon. You can see it everywhere that you look for it. And I think it can give you great comfort because death is never an end point on that cycle. It always leads on to regeneration. But what do you say to somebody who goes, oh yeah, but that's all just mechanical. That's evolution. Mm -hmm. That's you know chemicals interacting with chemicals and making stuff happen. It's an accident of uh -huh. physics that this is somehow possible. And that's all there is to that. You know, I might say you can go through life and experience it that way. Or you can say, what a miracle it is that this accident of physics produced a tree, <laughs> right? Yeah. But how, I'm basically, I'm yeah. talking about myself, Yeah. maybe not even that, all, that long ago, uh -huh. not actually feeling it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think part of our culture has disconnected people from their feelings, from their bodies, uh, from that actual experience of the beauty and the wonder of the world. So sometimes you can get people to feel it by taking them out into nature, by immersing them in nature. Uh, sometimes it might be through an experience of intense loss and grieving uh, that people come to an understanding that there's actually more to life than just the purely mechanical. Uh, sometimes it might be the experience of music, poetry. You know, for some people, I think psychedelic drugs might do it. <laughs> Open them up. Um, for other people, it might that might be a destructive road, and there might be it might be through song, it might be through music, it might be through community. Um, but it's through experience and not from belief. Yeah, it yeah. comes through experience, and it generally comes through something that activates what we call your younger self, that part of you that, you know, that's sensory, that's about smells and tastes and images and sensations and not about abstractions and theories. In the spiral dance, the last chapter mm -hmm. was called Creating Religion mm -hmm. Towards yeah. the Future. You're talking about the goddess religion. Yeah. That you were partially, you know, involved in developing. Mm-hmm. As a religion, mm -hmm. 
How do you think that's worked out? I think it's working out quite well. You know, in religion, again, not in the sense of a dogma or belief system, but more something like Buddhism or um, a spiritual tradition that allows people to create a community centered around the celebration of the sacred together. You know, when I wrote The Spiral Dance, it's now almost 40 years old. You know, just this last weekend, we also celebrated the Spiral Dance ritual, which for Halloween or Samhain, which was a tradition that started the year the book came out. The publishers provided some money for a book party, and I said, great, we'll use it and have a giant Halloween ritual, right? And we awesome. did, and we've been doing it ever since, you know, and we had an amazing ritual with something like a thousand people dancing a spiral together and raising a cone of power for justice and for our intention was to uh, stir a cauldron of outrage and tears and brew an elixir of radical peace and justice. Yeah. You got really involved with permaculture. Mm-hmm. Could you, and that became something you teach, you practice, and you talk about permaculture principles. Mm-hmm. Right? Could you say briefly what they are? Yeah, well, permaculture, again, it's a system of ecological design. And the idea is that you have, if you understand the principles by which nature works, then you can apply them in many different ways. For example, nature never works with simple isolated things it works through webs of relationships so we think about designing a system you know whether it's a garden or whether it's a human system we're thinking about how do we design the conditions that are going to further beneficial relationships how are we looking at everything in relationship so you know if you're a regular gardener you might look at the rose catalog and go like Oh, I want that rose, <laughs> right? That big fluffy one with all the pink petals, you know, I've got to have that rose. And believe me, I have done that many times, right? Um, but if you're a permaculturalist, you'd say, okay, well, if I'm going to have a rose, I might want the one with all the big pink fluffy petals. Um, but I might want a much simpler rose that actually has fewer petals, but that bees can get at so that it's a source of pollen and that furthers that relationship. I might want it that produces rose hips that I can use for tea and for medicine. Furthers that relationship. I'm going to think about where I put the rose. You know, what are its characteristics? It has thorns as well as flowers. So maybe if I put this rose on the fence then it'll keep the annoying little boys next door from climbing over and stealing the apples. Instead of having to put ugly barbed wire, I can have a beautiful rose. Uh, maybe the rose benefits by having garlic you know, near it. Uh, so maybe I can put it next to my garlic patch. And you're thinking about all those relationships. You know, maybe if I do really want that big, fluffy, pink-petaled rose, I can have it, right? You know, but it's um, got to have a special spot yeah, within the context have a spot of everything else. And that'll right. be in the right context. And maybe uh, I'll take those flowers and I'll give them to 
the old couple next door, and that will further our relationship and bring some little spot of beauty and joy into their lives. So it's a much more complex way of thinking. Um, so there are many, many principles, but a lot of them come down to designing relationships, to looking at connections and flows between things, to looking at where you place things for the most benefit, the relative location, uh, ways that you can, Buckminster Fuller would have said, do more with less. You can get multiple functions out of one element, ways in which you can have multiple elements to fulfill a function if it's really important. So if you you know if you really need energy in your homestead, you might have solar panels, but you might also have a wind generator for those times when the sun's not shining. You know, you have a plan B, you could say. Right. And that kind of yeah. systems like thinking now mm-hmm. has become much more pervasive. Yeah. We're seeing that in all kinds of ways. But what you're talking about is looking at nature mm-hmm. as the basis of the system that you're developing. Yeah. And one of the things I know you've done is taught is, is to teach groups that are collaborating mm-hmm. permaculture principles for group dynamics. Yeah. So I teach permaculture design courses. We call earth activist trainings that teach there's a standard 72 hour curriculum in the permaculture world for your basic course. And we teach it with a grounding in spirit and with ritual and ceremony and also a focus on organizing and activism. And I also teach what we've come to call social permaculture, uh, which is more about how do we design beneficial human relationships? What are the principles that allow us to come together in groups collaboratively? And how do we set conditions that help us work effectively together and help us nurture and nourish each other instead of dissolving into conflict like so many groups do. So like what's principle number one for that? Because I think not dissolving into conflict is something a lot of us would like to learn about. Principle number one for me is to actually value your human relations and realize they are precious things and they uh, deserve and require time and attention. And it's not about just writing people off the minute they annoy you, <laughs> because they will. Right? Somehow, they do, right? somehow, yes. And people are inherently annoying, right? <laughs> um, but it's about really working on that. And principle number two might be to embrace conflict, to not be afraid of conflict, um, because conflict is drama. Conflict is life. Conflict arises when we care about something. You care about something. I care about something. You have one idea of how to do it. I have another idea. You know, that's good in a group. That shows that there's life, there's vibrancy, there's energy. You know, if we can argue strongly for those perspectives, but do it with a ground of respect for each other as human beings. So understanding a lot of times conflicts in our group are conflicts of good versus good, not good versus evil. You know, maybe uh, maybe you want to list all the people who participated in our latest ritual and thank them all by name on the website, and maybe I want to just list all the roles, but I don't want to list all the names because I'm afraid we'll leave someone off and hurt their feelings. 
you know, that's not a good, doesn't make one of us good and one of us evil, right? It's, we both actually want the same thing. We want to honor and respect people and we want to make people feel good for having participated. We just have different ideas of how to do it. Right. And you're wrong. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> so how do you, re- so great. Yeah. Have lots of respect. And it's the for- first time that I ever have been. You know, right? <laughs> so great. So yeah. you've got this, you've got yeah. these two positions and yeah. the other thinks the other is the idiot. And yeah, right. what do you do? So if I think not that you're the idiot, but that you have a different position and I can come back and say, well, we both want the same thing. Then I can say, all right, well, let me really hear your concerns and acknowledge that it's a valid concern, you know, that, yes, there's several hundred people involved in putting this on. Chances are it could be really easy to leave somebody off. What can we do about that? You know, is the answer to not thank anyone or is the answer to figure out a way that we can carefully call the names that we want to thank and have some feedback mechanism. So if we do leave somebody off, we can add their name. And oftentimes, if we understand this and respect each other, then we can come up with a creative solution. And that might be more effective than either of our original ideas. As a basic working framework, permaculture becomes this way of seeing Mm -hmm. all of our relational interactions. Yeah. And, you know, one of the principles might be, I call it feed what you want to grow. If you nourish and you put energy and put resources into the thing that you want or the conditions that you want, rather than trying to just destroy what you don't want. (laughs) And I think that works really well, both in the garden and also in our human relations. But, you know, so much of being able to handle that yeah. and hold that has to do with you doing your own personal work. Yes. So you know how to identify where your anger is and what it's about <laughs> and then how to do something with it that's not going to be aggressive and, you know, essentially touch off somebody else in a way where they get triggered and want to come at you. Yeah, I mean, we have to do our own shadow work. We have to know ourselves and learn ourselves and learn, you know, the things that might trigger us, the moments where we tend to respond and react rather than respond carefully and thoughtfully to somebody. And nobody really gets through life very well without doing some of that work. That shadow work. Yeah. Are there particular approaches to doing that shadow work that have come out of the pagan Wiccan witches movement? We have done a lot of that in reclaiming, where we've synthesized. I mean, there are many of us. I was also trained as a therapist in my academic work. You know, I have an I, MA in psychology, and but a lot of us have integrated many different schools of healing and therapy. Uh, We use ritual and ceremony, we use imagery, we use what you might call spellcrafting in ways to consciously do some of that healing work and shadow work. We work a lot with mythology and with fairy tales and with story, you know, to see how some of those old stories might impact us and where we might see ourselves and where they might help us in our own transformation. In the witches' movement, 
Is there an easy and clear place to go for that therapeutic connection? Is there something, I mean, I'm just wondering how that's framed somebody's experience. Like they start participating in the scene. How do they find that place to do that work? Well, in reclaiming, we have a lot of intensives we call witch camp. You can go to for like a week at a time, sometimes in the summer and That's sometimes great. in the winter. You can yeah. go to witchcamp.org and find a list of them or reclaiming.org. And as part of them, we'll take people through a ritual cycle in the evenings. It's usually based on a myth or a fairy tale. And then in the mornings, people will go through a particular path. So oftentimes those paths center around some form of personal healing or transformation. Sometimes they might center around something like magical activism, or they might center around just learning and training. Um, But it can be a wonderful, rich experience, and it's a great way to build community as well. That's sweet. And that's so critical. I feel many of us who get into this sort of consciousness space through our, the different yeah. doorways into this, you know, sort of movement that seems to be happening are sometimes, you know, at a loss of where and how to find the spot for the shadow work. Yeah. And it's important to do it with people that you trust and who's, you know, who have integrity and have done their own shadow work. <laughs> if you can't find a bunch of witches or a good evolver community, look for a good therapist or, you know, something, someone, because a lot of times people have the idea of, oh, I can do this myself or I should do this myself. And it's the one kind of thing you really can't do. You didn't get yourself in that mess by yourself. You can't necessarily get yourself out of it without having someone to reflect back on what you're doing and someone to help hold the space and the transformation. So if we look five years out, Mm-hmm. From our current moment, what do you see? I see. <laughs> <laughs> I see not so much a backlash, a forelash <laughs> against this current moment of corruption and some of the liars and cheaters and those whose name will not be mentioned <laughs> yeah, out of office and an upsurge in people really wanting to come together and build a forward momentum into the future. You see, you really do feel that that's happening. You can see this happening. Well, let's say I see the potential for that happening. And as a witch, I tend, I believe it's part of my responsibility to focus my intention and my will on that positive vision, pour energy into it, not pour a lot of energy into you know, frantic worrying about what will happen if fascism triumphs, but instead envision what it will look like. I mean, a lot of the writing I've done with my novels, The Fifth Sacred Thing and City of Refuge, have been about envisioning that positive future. Um, Granted, with (laughs) also envisioning the negative future, but that's what gives them drama and interest as fiction. But um, for my personal energy, I want to put it toward the positive vision of what I see can happen. For those fans of The Fifth Sacred Thing Mm -hmm. who are waiting for the film or waiting for the TV series, Mm -hmm. what's happening? Well, as we speak, it has been pitched to a company that we're very much hoping to work with, but we haven't heard back yet. So we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Awesome. 
Starhawk, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And if people are interested in coming to take one of our courses, we have an Earth Activist training starting in January in Northern California. We will have a social permaculture course in the spring in California. Uh, We have many other things, and you can find them all on my website, which is starhawk.org or at earthactivisttraining.org. Thank you very much. Thank you. The split in our country is real, but the seeds for healing are held in the feminist movement. Practices for listening to each other, sharing our wounds, feeling empathy for one another's pain. The fact is that progressives now are the majority. We have the numbers, even if we don't control all the levers of political power. Shouldn't healing be a priority for the consciousness movement as we also engage in the messy process of ensuring that the government supports this transition to a healthy, sustainable future. I want to thank Starhawk for being a guest on the podcast, and thank you, too, for joining us. You can follow Starhawk on her website, starhawk.com, and on her Facebook page. If you like what we're doing here at The Evolver, please share this episode on social media, tell your friends, and mention it in the hall after yoga class. If you can also leave us a star rating on iTunes, that would be huge. Those stars actually make a difference and help us reach more people. Send us a note at theevolver at evolver.net. And if you got some questions, pop them in there. And we're planning on an episode sometime fairly soon where I answer some questions. And maybe you got a good one and I can answer yours. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast the evolver podcast and on facebook at evolver social movement i want to thank our producer jose alfaro and the acast team our theme music is measure by measure by paul d miller aka dj spooky from his album the secret song and our interstitial music are tracks by the human experience sunu from the album soul visions with rising appalachia and here for a moment on the album gone gone beyond please check him out that's all for now we'll be back next week The Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.